we're going to do things slightly different, which is why that is the slide that is going to stay up for you to think on while I go through what I'm doing. And we're kind of going to do it in a bit of a story format. So before that, I want to pray and then we're going to take it away. Lord Jesus, I want to thank you that you, um, you are the greatest of all. Thank you that we got to sing to you, the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, um, the one who is worth more than anything else. I thank you that whatever reason we've come through these doors today, maybe we've been invited, maybe we're exploring faith, maybe we've been here for many years. I thank you, Lord Jesus, that we have an opportunity through you and your word to encounter you. I ask that each one of us would leave here different because what we're about as church, it's not about being a club. It's not about self-help and self-improvement. It's about connecting with a living God who loves us and is about transforming our lives. And so as we go through today and we go through these moments together and we celebrate together afterwards, as we be changed by you, Holy Spirit. Your name we pray. Amen. Great. So I love watching movies. I also love watching movie trailers. So sometimes on YouTube, I find myself, there's these different uh, pages that, uh, on YouTube that, um, that cover the new movies coming out. And I love watching it. Um, and uh, recently, I've got excited. The trailer's not out yet. There's a lot of fake ones. Um, and they're really annoying because they trick you. And it says, like, The Matrix 4. The Matrix. I can't wait to watch it. I don't know if anyone watched The Matrix when it came out. A long time ago now. Hands up. Hands up who even knows what it is. Hands up. Keep your hands up if you like it. Uh, okay, brilliant trailer of movies. I can't wait for that to come out. Uh, so I, I, I just can't wait for that. But people keep trying to trick you into watching a trailer that's not there. But when it comes out, it's going to be absolutely brilliant. Then uh, Chronicles of Narnia is supposed to be coming out with another one. There's many others. But trailers are just cool to watch when you go to the movies. It's great to look at trailers. And the thing that's so interesting with them, some trailers you realize that every good part in the entire movie is in the trailer. So you watch the trailer and you're just like, this is going to be mind-blowing. And then what you find out is that basically you could have watched the trailer and you've done your bit for watching that movie. So those are the ones that are an absolute waste. And good on those guys for making sales and getting into the box office on something absolutely horrific and just on the trailer. But then there's brilliant trailers where they, they draw you in, they entice you. They show you just enough of the story to get you excited for the rest of it, but they don't show you enough that it ruins all the punchlines and the special moments. There's an art to creating great trailers. So what they should do is they show you glimmers, they show you parts of the story, but what you're really doing is you're waiting for the full-length movie to be revealed to really get everything out of the trailer. And people say that to hit for a movie to be brilliant, you need to hit some specific key aspects, and every great movie hits these. And so all the movie uh, people who are making them, the directors, are trying in different ways to follow this similar formula to get us to buy into their story. And there's a number of different variations to this, but I love a man called Donald Miller. He uses something called the story brand framework. He uses this for movies, for businesses, and many people follow his framework. This is what he says, for every brilliant story, this is what you have to have. There's got to be a central character or a people group. They're called the protagonist. Big word. I have no idea what it really means, but it sounds excellent. Um, and this central person, they have a clear goal or a calling or something to achieve in life. That's, that, that's what this character has, an achievement thereafter. But the character has a problem or the people group have a problem. And it may be in the form of an enemy, an antagonist. 
or it may be in so a villain, it may be in the form of a situation, but they have a problem. And this needs to be overcome in order for them to achieve what they're supposed to achieve. And so along the way, what happens is, is this central character usually comes across someone called the guide. And this might be Yoda, for those of you who like Star Wars, or Obi-Wan Kenobi. Um, in the Star Wars movies, there's a number of different guides. It may be Gandalf in the Lord of the Rings movies. I'm showing my age now because I was trying to go, what are my favorite movies? And then I was saying, okay, well, definitely Gladiator, Braveheart. Then I look back and those were like in the late 90s, early 2000s. I realized half of the guys in their 20s here will not even know what that movie is. So anyway, there's always going to be this guide. And what the guide's responsibility is in the movie is what the guide does is he walks alongside this character he shows the character the way, he gives the character some solutions on how to get there, and he sort of calls into action. So he says, you can do this, in spite of what's going on. And, and at different moments, the guide will appear, and the guide is this role that gets alongside the character to help the character to be the hero in the story. And ultimately, what's supposed to happen, doesn't always happen in movies, and sometimes there's a shock factor in that, but ultimately what's supposed to happen is this hero, with the help of a guide, achieves success or prevents failure, boom, Box office hit, so any of you guys can be great movie makers. Now I believe that every great movie gets its power to some extent from the greatest story, from the greatest example of the story brand framework. We're all part of it. We're not part of it as actors. We're part of it as living, breathing people. It's one that's unfolding to us as we live, and one day we will see the complete edition. Right now, in many respects, it's kind of like a trailer to us. We see parts, we see glimpses of this one great story. The director knows exactly what the movie's going to look like. It's already been done, but we get to see parts of it. And uh, we're going to see what the director's planned from the beginning of time. So we're going to dive into that story today. Last week, for those of you who were with us, if not, I definitely listened to it on podcast. We're in the middle of a toolbox series. We're covering down to how do we read the Bible for all it's worth? How do we hear God's voice? Last week, we looked at some of the practicals of Scripture. Today, we're going to look at the story of Scripture. That's the lens that we see what we read in the Bible through. And so last week, I looked at, some of you may remember, that the Bible is sort of a library of books. Don't look at it just as one. Look at it as a library, 66 books on a shelf, and you can choose because there's different genres and different things to learn from. But also, whilst it's a lot of different books, the Bible is also one story. It's one story that flows through the entire space of all those books. And we need to see Scripture through that story. If we don't, we will miss out on getting to grips with what it's all about about. We'll see something beautiful in the corner of a great painting. So we'll look at this massive canvas, but we'll focus and zero in on, on a beautiful flower, but we'll miss what the whole canvas is actually about. So there'll be glimmers, but we want to see the whole story. And so the flow of biblical scripture, it spans thousands of years and several different cultural settings, absolutely astounding as you read through it. And yet there's this unifying thread and it covers four main acts like in a play or like in a movie. It covers the creation, it covers the fall, it covers the redemption, and it covers the restoration. We're going to look at those four points today. And there's this crimson line. There's this trickle of divine blood that flows across every page that if you're looking for it, you can see that this Bible is really pointing to a central character. It's pointing to a central story, and everything else flows around the back of that. 
this trickle of blood runs through the entire spread of Scripture, displays God's matchless love and His awe-inspiring purpose to us across every book that we read. You see, all Scripture is God-breathed. It says, us to that, um, it says that to us in 2 Timothy 3 verse 16. Every little bit of Scripture is from God. Every bit has His breath on it. It has a purpose. It has a life. And then Scripture also says in John 5 verse 39, this is what Jesus said to the leaders of the day. I shared this briefly last week. He said, you pour over the Scriptures because you think you have eternal life in them. And yet the Scriptures testify about me. So Jesus was on earth and he was saying, you read these Scriptures, everyone, but you need to realize that what you're reading is actually pointing to me. I'm the foundation. I'm the source. So scripture is this incredible story and it answers the great questions of life. Maybe you've come here today for various different reasons and you may have these questions. Where did we come from? Why am I here? Why am I here on earth? What is the point in my existence right now? Where are we going? That's fine for me to be living here. I can scrape a little bit of joy out of it. But where are we going? What's gone wrong with the world And what's the solution? These are the questions that everyone in the world asks. And I want you to know that those answers are found in Scripture if we're prepared to look. The Scripture I'll kick off with and we dive into those four points today. Isaiah 46 verses 9 to 10. I'll read it for you. And as I said, I'm doing this as a story. Um, Listen to it. I'll get the notes out as well this week so you can follow through on all these Scriptures. But look at what it says, Isaiah 46. He was a prophet. Um, He spoke many things that came to pass thousands, hundreds of years later. This is what he says. Remember what happened long ago. For I am God and there is no other. I am God and no one is like me. I declare the end from the beginning and from long ago what is not yet done. Saying, my plan will take place and I will do all of my will. What a starting point to this story. Because I've got some news for all of you standing here today. In the story that we live in, we are not the heroes. And we are not the guides. We are not the central characters at all. So if you sat here thinking, the world revolves around me. And Jesus revolves around me in my life. And God does. And He is there to make my wildest dreams come true. I'm very sorry. In the story that you're living, that is not the case. And you will get frustrated every single day. If that's what you believe. We all play a role. A significant role. Every one of us plays a significant cameo role. We're not the guides. As I said, we are not the heroes. This is a cosmic story from before time began. And King Jesus plays the leading role. We all have very small but incredibly minor parts to play. But they are important. So as we consider where we are in the story. That actually life is about him. Everything revolves around God, not the other way around. That's the best place to start looking at the story and reading scripture. Let's dive into those four acts. First one, creation. First one, creation in the greatest story of all. Look at how the Bible starts out. The very first bit of scripture. In the beginning, God. That's the starting point. In the beginning, God. Not in the beginning, Craig. Or in the beginning, anyone else. In the beginning, God. That's our starting point for life. 
It starts with Him, full stop. The triune God experiencing perfect community, God the Father, God the Son, and Holy Spirit, perfect community, absolutely whole, not needing anyone else at all, decides to create the heavens and the earth, and at the pinnacle of creation, you and I, His people, in His image, to live with Him joyfully for all eternity. He didn't need us, but He wanted us. He didn't have to have us perfectly happy on His own. God does not need you and I. But boy, does he love us. And boy, does he want to share in joy with us. And so this first act, creation, you primarily see it in Genesis 1 and 2. Slightly different ways of saying the same story. But you see it through scripture. David in the Psalms, in Psalms 8, talks about that as well. We see it in Isaiah. Other people speaking about this creation account that God was part of. But him as the creator. Part 1. In the beginning, God. He's the starting point. He's the creator. The curtain closes on the first act and we enter the second, the fall. The fall. Some of you may know the story, but things are going brilliantly, like in most movies. You know, you're watching these movies, maybe it's a romantic comedy, or maybe it's another one, and you're watching it just like, it's just seeming a little bit too perfect and we're only 20 minutes in. You know, it's just going, you're just like, hmm. And then suddenly something happens or the music changes a little bit. Or, or suddenly there's, there, you can just see something's happening in this couple's relationship. You know it's setting itself up for the fall. It's coming. Well, it happened in our story. Some of you may know it. But in one bad call, one decision to take themselves above God, to make calls before honoring God, Adam and Eve disobeyed God and they set in motion this devastating chain of events in both internally in our hearts and our souls but externally in the world the poison of sin sin meaning disobedience to God the poison of sin starts to infiltrate and seep its way into every aspect of our minds of our hearts of society in which we live of creation And it has a toxic grip. And so we experience separation from a perfect, holy God. You see, because of Adam's sin, all of us are born into sin. Each one of us, we are born into it. We can't blame Adam for the sin that we face. And we know that we have it. I don't think there's any one of you in this room who would say, it's okay, Craig, I've done nothing wrong. We just know it, especially if you're a parent, you know it with your children. It was different for me because I didn't make any mistakes in life. But for our kids, I'm joking. (laughs) For our children, we do not have to teach them to be naughty. We do not have to say, right, Leila and Erin, it's now time for you to argue. We would love you to fight. But dad, what is fighting? What is arguing? We're going to show you. I'm going to show you. I'll show you, Leila. I'll teach you because I know. (laughs) It's not happens like that. Romans 3 verse 23. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, the perfection of God. Romans 5 verse 12, Therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man, Adam, and death through that sin, in the same way death spread to all people, because all of us have sinned. And if you think you haven't sinned, maybe you are sitting here going, "Ah, to be honest, what I do isn't that bad. I don't think God thinks that it's a problem. How's about we do this? If you can get me a recording of everything you've thought, said, and done just in the past week, It doesn't have to be that much. So just in the past week, everything you've thought, everything you've said and done in this last week, then if you can record it and bring it as a movie next week, we don't need to preach. But what we would like to do is we'll get the popcorn and stuff, and then we will do that. We'll show that um, as a movie for everyone. We're going to entitle the sermon, Everyone Sins. Um, (laughs) 
You get the point. There's mess in our lives. There's things that we do or think that we're not proud of. And each one of us, if we stood before God or even other people who also are messed up, we would sit there going, there's things that I am ashamed of because all have sinned. None of us are perfect. And as a result, we experience physical death on earth because Adam and Eve before, before sin with God, eternity lay before them. What sin ushered in is decay in our physical bodies and in the world in which we live. So we experience physical death on earth due to that. But also because of God's hatred towards sin, love for people, hatred towards sin, and sin within us, a separation from God for all eternity, experiencing that wrath. So all seems hopelessly lost in this movie, in the greatest story of all. It's on a serious downward spiral. Enter Act 3, Redemption. Enter Act 3 in God's story, Redemption. Thankfully, he initiates a rescue plan, which he had still planned before the beginning of the world, knowing that these things were going to happen anyway. And again, it begins with him. The rescue plan is not on us, because what can people with mess in their lives actually sort out and fix? It has to be initiated from perfection. So he chooses a special people. He chooses a special nation. And he's like, do you know what? These people are going to show the rest of the world what perfection looks like and what I'm like on earth. That's what these people are going to do. Now, he knew full well they weren't going to do it. Um, but that, that, that was the heart that he was getting across. Guys, this is going to be a special people. But they let God down again and again and again. And you see this in his people. It's like they followed him for a little bit. And then they went their own way. They followed him for a little bit. And they went their own way. A bit like us. Sometimes we might sit there and going, those Israelite people. Some of you may know the stories of them, how they grumbled and complained. There is no ways I would ever have complained. Those pathetic people. If I was one of those people, when Moses was in the desert, I wouldn't have complained. I think we probably would have. I think it would have been exactly the same. So God's story with this nation of Israel was actually to demonstrate that none of us, regardless of what we do and regardless of what regulations he puts in place, will ever match up to what we should But in the midst of all this mess, we see glimmers of God's action plan against sin unfolding already. So in the midst of it, you pick up these little glimmers that happen all the time of this hero that's coming. This central character, this hero that is going to come in and is actually going to solve the problems that we never could. I want to quote from something called The True and Better by a man called Tim Keller. And and, and this is just an amazing picture of where we see Jesus Christ in all of Scripture before Jesus comes anyway. Listen to this. Jesus is the true and better Adam who passed the test in the garden and whose obedience is um, is imputed to us. Jesus in the garden of Gethsemane. He did what he needed to do for us when Adam failed. Jesus is the true and better Abel. Some of you may know Cain and Abel, who though innocently was killed, his blood now cries out, not for our condemnation, but for our acquittal. Jesus is the true and better Abraham, who answered the call of God to leave all the comfortable and the familiar and to go into the void, not knowing um, uh, whether he went to create a new people of God, not knowing that he needed to create a new people of God. Jesus is the true and better Isaac, who was not just offered up by his father on the mount, but was truly sacrificed for us. And when God said to Abraham, now I know you love me because you did not withhold your son, your only son who you love from me. Now we can look at God taking his son 
up the mountain and sacrificing him and say, now we know that you love us because you did not withhold your son, your only son from us. Jesus is the true and better Jacob who wrestled and took the blow of justice that we deserved so that we, like Jacob, only receive the wounds of grace to wake us up and discipline us. Jesus is the true and better Joseph who at the right hand of the king forgives those who betrayed and sold him and uses his new power to save them. Jesus is the true and better Moses who stands in the gap between the people and the Lord and who mediates a new covenant. Jesus is the true and better rock of Moses who um, struck with the rod of God's justice now gives us water in the desert. A few more, so powerful. Jesus is the true and better Job, the truly innocent sufferer who then intercedes for and saves his stupid friends. Jesus is the true and better David whose victory becomes his people's victory, though they never lifted up a stone to accomplish it themselves. Jesus is the true and better Esther who didn't just risk leaving an earthly palace, but lost the ultimate and heavenly one who didn't just risk his life, but gave his life to save his people. Jesus is the true and better Jonah who, cast, who was cast out into the storm so that we could be brought in. Jesus is the real rock of Moses, the real Passover lamb, innocent, perfect, helpless, slain so that the angel of death will pass over us. He's the true temple, the true prophet, the true priest, the true king, the true sacrifice, the true lamb, the true light, and the true bread. You see, the Bible's really not about you. It's about him. It's astounding that as we read through those scripture passages in the Old Testament, we can see Jesus as the one who fulfills true and better than anyone else. And it's all pointing towards him. Not only that in the Bible, we see promises. We see prophetic words of future events of this hero that come to pass. There's no other faith, there's no other person that's able to predict with such accuracy hundreds, thousands of years ahead of time, this hero's coming. But in scripture, it happens. There's so many different ones. Some are clearer, some are more foggy. Genesis 3 verse 15, it talks about the offspring of woman, the offspring of this lady who will one day crush the head of Satan. Speaks about it. Genesis 3 verse 15. Psalm 16 verse 10. David talking and and writing, David writing Psalms, he says, for you'll not abandon me to Sheol or to the grave. You will not allow your faithful one to see decay. Talking about, yes, Jesus dying and rising again, but ultimately talking about the fact that that will happen to us as well. Psalm 22, listen to this, and maybe some of you have never read scripture before, or maybe this is new to you. Psalm 22, tell me what this sounds familiar or how it sounds familiar to you. That's what David was writing. I'm poured out like water. All my bones are disjointed. My heart is like wax melting within me. My strength is dried up like baked clay. My tongue sticks to the roof of my mouth. You put me into the dust of death. For dogs have surrounded me. A gang of evildoers has closed in on me. They pierce my hands and my feet. I count all my bones. People look and they stare at me. They divide my garments among themselves and they cast lots for my clothing. What was he talking about when he wrote that poem so long ago? Do you know what's interesting is that crucifixion wasn't even in existence then. What's he talking about when he talks about piercing hands and feet? That's a weird thing to write. 
It's very strange. What's he talking about people casting lots for my clothes? All of that collectively is pointing to Christ. But written hundreds and hundreds of years before something even existed. Isaiah 9 talks to us, it talks about a child who will be born, a son will be given. And the government will be on his shoulders. He will uh, be named Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. The dominion will be vast and his prosperity will never end. Talking about this child coming to rule and reign. Talks about this child coming from the area of Galilee. That's what it speaks about. Isaiah 53 talks about someone who was oppressed and afflicted, yet he didn't open his mouth. Like a lamb, he was led to be slaughtered. Like a sheep, he was silenced before his shearers. He didn't open his mouth. The whole passage has this weird element of what exactly is Isaiah talking about? But at the same time, I kind of know what he's talking about. But Isaiah wouldn't have known what he was speaking about. Micah 5 verse 2 talks about Bethlehem, the place called Bethlehem. You are small among the clans of Judah, but one will come from you to be ruler over Israel for me. His origin is from antiquity, from before the beginning of the world. What's interesting is, is this is like someone saying, TMC Deirdre, we're here, we love and support uh, from uh, Chiguti. They'd be cross, they'd be upset with me. But it's like, it's like me saying, do you know what, guys? In 2,000 years' time, there's someone who's going to be born in Chiguti, and they are going to be the president of Zimbabwe. They're going to be born at that exact time and they're going to come from this exact place. Or, I mean, we could make it bigger. They're going to end up being the president of the states. It doesn't really matter. The clarity of someone writing thousands of years before saying someone's going to come who's going to lead and is going to be king in this tiny little place called Bethlehem that could be anywhere in the world is astounding. There's so many more. But this is the other flow that we see of Jesus through Scripture. These promises, these prophetic words coming to pass. And some still to come to pass. There's so many more. We also see the wrath of God against sin in the Old Testament. God's wrath coming full force into sin. But we see that being a shadow of His wrath coming against His Son. 2 Corinthians 5 verse 21 talks about, For God made Him, Jesus... Who knew no sin to be sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God. That could never happen for people in the Old Testament before Christ came. They were looking to Christ. And now this one comes who takes on sin that would usually be ours. And then we see God weaving through Scripture these blessings of His people. They follow Him and they experience blessing. And they don't follow Him. They don't experience it. But it's all pointing towards something in eternity forever where we'll experience blessing as his kids forever. And Ephesians talks about that. So how incredible we see the fulfillment of these promises. And then Jesus comes, the promised one. It's this great moment in the movie that we've been waiting for. Everything's looking bad, like there's no hope. What's really going to happen? We see glimmers, we hear sounds. Is this hero coming? And bam, he arrives on the stage, the central character. He joins his people on earth to make a way back to God from the devastation of sin. Look at this in Galatians 4 verse uh, 4. Verse 4. When the time came to complete completion, God sent his son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons in God's perfect time we might say why why not do you know what's so interesting I sort of think of Jesus came now 
there probably would be limited need or necessity for faith. There still would be, but what I love about the fact that it was there is that people could write about it, they could see it with their eyes, but they couldn't all be standing there, hundreds of them with their cameras, taking it in. I still think people wouldn't believe Jesus was who he said he is, but I love the fact that God chose to come in a time where there was enough way to make evidence. People could write on paper, people could see, people could tell stories, but there wasn't so much that it got absolutely ruined by BBC and by CNN and by everything else. So I just love his timing. I think it's perfect myself. I absolutely love it. Christ on earth is the great turning point. All history has been moving towards the point of God's salvation plan. And now we look back on it as Christ followers, those exploring faith, we look back on it, but we also look towards the completion of his plan. John the Baptist ushers in Jesus' ministry. He says in John 1 verse 29, he saw Jesus coming toward him and he said, here is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Amazing picture as he comes in on earthly time. He perfectly obeyed the law, which we never could, and the Israelites never could. And though innocent, he suffered the consequences of our rebellion against God. He died on the cross for you and I. But then rising on the third day, he proved that he was the acceptable sacrifice. 1 Timothy 2 verse 5. There is one God and one mediator between God and humanity, only one. No one else can, no one else will. The man Christ Jesus who gave himself as a ransom for all, a testimony at the proper time. And as I shared at the beginning, and then we're, we're almost into our last point. If that wasn't enough, when Jesus came back to life, he met up and he hung out with a few different people, some people on a road, some other followers, and he shared a few things with them. These guys were all getting concerned and down. This Jesus, he was supposed to rise again. We were following him. He thought he was going to be amazing. And he's suddenly talking to them and he's walking with them. And he says, guys, you are so foolish. How slow to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Wasn't it necessary for the Messiah to suffer these things and enter his glory? And then beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted for them the things concerning himself. Guys, this is all about me. I am the hero of the story. Luke 24, verse 44. He then rocks up and appears to his disciples. These are my words that I spoke to you whilst I was still with you. That everything written about me in the law of Moses, in the prophets, and the Psalms must be fulfilled. And then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. And it's what I pray he does to you now, but for all of your lives. And now as a church, we're called and empowered to carry on his mandate on earth. To make disciples of all nations. It's what he asked the disciples to do. It's what he asks us to do right now as well. To be his witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. We carry on the mandate that God left for us. And then finally, restoration as we close. God the creator. God working in spite of the fall. God redeeming us and buying us back for himself. Then finally, restoration. We see little glimmers of that. We see our hearts being restored. We see, we see glimmers of, of his restoration. But it's truly coming. He says, repent and believe. He says, now you see in part, but one day you're going to see fully. 1 Corinthians 13, you see a glimmer now, everybody. Just wait until you see me face to face. He is the rider on the white horse. He is the risen king to judge the living and the dead. 
Look at this passage, Ephesians 1, verse 7. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, that he richly poured out on us with all understanding. He made known to us the mystery of his will, this is God speaking to us, according to his good pleasure that he purposed in Christ as a plan for the right time to bring everything together in Christ, both things in heaven and things on earth. In him we also have received an inheritance. As Christ follows, we look to another world. We look to an inheritance that is to come. Because we were predestined according to the plan of the one who works out everything in agreement with the purpose of his will. There is no accident in the world in which we're living. We're not actors and this is just a story. Like this is real life, but there is no accident. I read it in Isaiah 46 before. I'll read it again now. God is in absolute control of your life and mine. He is in absolute control of the world in which we live. So that we who have already put our hope in Christ might bring praise to his glory. Because we live as people looking to another world. That brings praise to the king. Everything that he has planned will come to pass in the greatest story of all time. He will have victory. Nothing will stand in his great and glorious way. And here's the movie's closing scene. But the difference is that this scene goes on and on forever. There is no end to this great movie. But listen to his closing scene. Revelation 21. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. And the sea was no more. I saw a holy city. The new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, prepared like a bride adorned for her husband. Then I heard a loud voice from the throne. Look, God's dwelling is with humanity and he will live with them. They will be his people and God himself will be with them and he will be their God face to face. Spending time with the king of kings face to face. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death will be no more. Grief, crying, and pain will be no more because the previous things have passed away. You're struggling now. You're suffering now. Those things will pass away and they will be no more. Then the one seated on the throne said, Look, I'm making everything new. He said, Right, because these words are faithful and true. And then he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and I'm the Omega. I am the beginning and I am the end. I will freely give to the the thirsty from the spring of the water of life. If you're here today and you're feeling thirsty, maybe you're thirsty for the reality of God in your life, or maybe you are a Christ follower, but He's not really your source. If you're thirsty today, He will bring you the waters of life now and into all eternity. What a great day of complete restoration that will be. What a day to hope in. What a day to rejoice in. You see, we know the end of the movie. We see a little bit of the preview now. But as Christ follows, we know the end of the movie. We don't know exactly what it's going to look like, which is why it's so exciting. But we see glimmers because we know who will be victorious. You see, we live in the time where we can watch the trailer and the movie's already been created, but it hasn't yet been released to cinemas worldwide. When it releases, it will be free for everyone. I hope you're booking your tickets now for front row prestige seats. I hope you're waiting eagerly in line for the premiere. I hope you're telling your friends to make sure they get along to this movie, that they buy tickets and that they don't miss out. 
I hope you're keeping your calendar open every day for the minute it airs because it will catch you and I by surprise. What an incredible story we're part of. The greatest there will ever be. Let's live it. Let's breathe it. Let's focus on it. And let's give our lives for this story. It's a choice each of us have every single day. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we get to be part of the greatest story that there will ever be. If you're here today, maybe you're visiting, maybe you've been exploring for a while. I want you to know that what you've heard today in creation, fall, redemption, restoration, this great story, this king who stepped down to pay the price you could never pay. You can become part of the story. You can live a purpose in the story. You can engage in it and you can, you can live out and look forward to those prestige seats for all eternity. And Jesus said, what does it take? Repent and believe. Say, I'm going one direction and I'm going to turn around and I'm going to go the other direction. Jesus, I believe what you say is true. I'm giving my life to you. I'm putting my life in your hands because my goodness, do I know you love me. I saw it on the cross. I've seen scripture. I know it points towards you and I want that. And right now, this moment in your heart, you can come chat to us afterwards. Or right now, your life can be changed. Your destiny can be changed right now. Don't miss out. You can do it. And then for the rest of us, Lord Jesus, I pray that we would lift our gaze to the greatest story. Please help us not to get bogged down in things that really don't matter. And for us to get bogged down and choked up by the weeds and the cares of this world, by the thorns that grew up around us. Lord Jesus, I pray that we would be soil, that we would be clay in your hands that is fertile, that is ripe, that is soft. Lord Jesus, mold us into all that you would have us be. Lord Jesus, may we give our lives something that matters for all eternity. May we actively engage and be part of the greatest story of all time. In your powerful, incredible, glorious name we pray. Amen. Amen. Amen.